0: Hello, everyone. Hello. And welcome to the Reconciled Life Podcast, a podcast that explores the idea of racial reconciliation through the lens of interracial marriage. I am your host, Aaron Brown.
1: And I am his wife, Holly Brown.
0: And the other host of this <laughs> show. She's trying to change the script this I far am. into season one. We
1: need to be flexible.
0: Sure. Anyway. <laughs> You're all business today.
1: Okay, we're jumping into it.
0: Uh, today... <laughs> Today, we are doing things uh, slightly differently. We are nearing the end of season one. And, uh, whoop, whoop. yes, it's <laughs> uh, been an awesome labor of love. Uh, we're going to do a little bit of question and answer, uh, that of some questions we received, but today we're going to do questions that we have for one another.
1: Questions like Aaron. When did you first know you loved me?
0: Not questions like that. Oh, come like on. That. I just think our listeners would want to hear that. From the very beginning. Oh,
1: yeah. lies. Uh, lies, lies. The
0: fun thing about these questions is that we thought of them, but we haven't shared them with one another. So we're putting each other in the hot seat.
1: Yeah, and so I will be honest. I'm a little nervous. We were supposed to record later on, like we're doing it during nap time. And we were supposed to record after dinner. And I asked Aaron to pump it up so we can get it over with. Uh,
0: And so we'll do an episode. This episode will be questions we have for one another. And then next week will be some questions that we received that uh, we will share with all of you. So let's get to it. We're going to let Holly go first.
1: Oh, put me out of my misery. Okay, I'll ask (laughs) the first question. Because now I'm still wondering what you're going to ask me. Okay. Mr. Aaron Brown. Oh
0: my god, that's so formal. <laughs> are you nervous?
1: No. Well, you should be. <laughs> okay, first question. So, we have both agreed, and you are somewhat proud of the fact that you are not an emotional person. Is that true?
0: <laughs> that is true. <laughs> We've
1: had many fights about this, actually. Yet, we're going to get vulnerable here Ugh. this year i've seen you be more emotional than i have about a lot of things mm-hmm. and this has been by far the most emotional year that we have been married would you agree with that
0: mm, i don't know really i only say that because the the times involving our children were also pretty emotional times.
1: yeah but i mean like a whole year like i would say of the nine months of 2020 eight of them have been yeah you don't have to agree this is or part this... of the fun okay keep tell going. us your opinion keep okay going. so then can we agree it's one of the in the top two years or three years yeah, yeah for sure okay people this is what i live with <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Anyway, so... Sort
0: of. Not really.
1: <laughs> um, okay, so 2020, we've talked about it a lot on this podcast. It has been a hard year. And so I think my question for you is knowing that the main other times you have gotten emotional has been revolving our, involving our children, this year, what has been different for you? Why has the racial tension in our country been so much more heavy for you? I guess, is it you that have, has changed, or do you feel like it's the things that we are facing today have changed?
0: That's a great question. Good job, Holly. Thank you. For me, I think the biggest impact that I have changed is that I, and we covered this, I think episode one, like I grew up in a largely white uh, school, a largely white church. I went to a largely white college. I went to a uh, a largely white grad school program and so I have been used to navigating white spaces and yeah. I've been used to being one of the few uh, black people that have been quote unquote light and safe and in those spaces, in those spaces and given opportunities. Uh, I have been used to being a first in a lot of doors hmm. um, which has been a blessing. I think what has changed is my ignorance about what else was happening and that while I was benefiting and having opportunities, which I'm grateful for, and I've had some amazing people in my life to mentor me and open those doors. I started to look beyond just my experience and what was happening to the black community and the community of people of color as a whole and starting to wonder well why am i in 2000 blah 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 still one of the first to do this thing that seems so ordinary um and so as i started along that journey and like it wasn't like i didn't think racism existed uh but i wasn't fully aware of how rampant it was and i think you know with this current administration, that has, and even with parts of uh, Obama's presidency, that backlash to a black president has sort of ripped open wounds that we as Americans thought we were, thought were healed or thought were growing. And I think I was in the, yay, maybe we are post-racial, and you know the pendulum swung the other way, and you're like, oh wow, no, we're really, really still stuck in the muck. And so for me. 2020 has just been a constant wrestling with the opportunities and privileges I had uh, and the awareness that that was a special circumstance. Mm. That that wasn't the given and that wasn't what everybody got. That I had been blessed and I had gotten some special things but that that other people around me weren't getting and wouldn't get. And looking beyond... Mm. The privilege I had had in churches and schools to go, but why is it just for me? And Can that's I not push okay.
1: into this a little more and yeah. say, so are you saying even other black kids at your church and even other, even other black kids at your school weren't getting the same opportunities? Or are you saying the more, I would say, stereotypical idea of like, well, the black community that is in the lower socioeconomic part of your city growing up didn't have the same opportunities as you did.
0: I think it's all in different in different ways. How so? Um because I think so often when we start talking about race and things and I know for Christian ideals and and groups, we don't like to say things are on a spectrum. But this is one of the things that's on a spectrum that uh, you know, some place, some spaces you get more privileges here, some get it here, some it's about socioeconomic, some it's about your parents are divorced, some it's about whatever, whatever, financial, all along.
1: Religion. Religion,
0: all on that gamut. And so, um, yes, it wasn't like I was, I don't know, looking back on it, I do feel like there were times where I think people thought, Wow. He's like a unicorn. He's black, so we get our diversity points. He's working really hard, and he's smart. His parents are um, re- are married still, but they go to church. Like, it was checking all the boxes. The only thing that made me different is that I was black. I think I learned just a lot to not worry about my blackness, to ignore it as not part of who I am. And I maybe that's a better way to say it, is that now I am fully aware of it. The positive and the negative sides of it and trying to be unashamed of that in a world that wants me to be ashamed of my blackness.
1: Hmm.
0: I don't know if that really answers your question because it's hard to retroactively look back at your life and go, oh, this was because of this, because I truly believe that all those circumstances made me who I am and has led me to marry you and have our kids and be where I am. And I'm grateful for all of that. But I just also know now that the world doesn't all view me in the same way that my white mentors and friends did. Uh, And that's hard.
1: And maybe that's what I was trying to get at. Like for people listening to understand, if you agree with this, that you can be at the same church and one black kid like yourself, for example, hit all those boxes and so not just, I mean it can be school maybe it's because you were in an AP class but it's because one teacher noticed you but there might be another black kid who was just as hard working who hit most of the boxes but maybe had a few different and that world could look different for them and so it really potentially does come down to I feel like for, for youth, black youth really needing to either line up those boxes or someone takes special note so you're not grouped in with the stereotype would you agree with that
0: i mean from being an educator every student has to be seen as who they are individually and i know from also being a teacher that is difficult when you have masses of students that are coming through your doors but i wouldn't have i don't some of my educational journey is different because in third grade, Miss Camp talked to my mom. It's like, I think he needs to be in a gifted class and pretty soon we're going to do, um, a podcast about understanding, looking into how systems have perpetuated racism in our country and talking. One of those will be education and the idea that for most black students if they don't have a black teacher they often get overlooked for opportunities like that yeah um and i was blessed said miss camp who was a white teacher who i adored and she saw something in me now was i a different student in third grade than i was in second grade or first grade (laughs) i don't know um i don't (laughs) necessarily think i was um but she is the one that sort of put me in that place and allowed Sort of the AP sort of route to be part of my educational journey. I think it's just important to be seen Mm. as who you are. Um, And that's not unique to people of color. Yeah. uh, Yeah. But it is enhanced because they are often invisible or seen as a group rather than an individual.
1: Mm. That's good. So... Um, that actually goes along with my next question. Whoa, whoa,
0: whoa. I thought it was one question.
1: No, it was two. Whatever. Okay. We agreed <laughs> on two. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, so you've just talked about this. Um, and I think a lot of our listeners know why now, but we both have worked with students for mm-hmm. many, many years. We both have worked with high school students and college students. Um, You were a high school teacher before grad school, and then grad school you taught college students, and now you are a professor at a state school. So a lot of our world has revolved around trying to help impact the next generation. Um, But I would say we both, through the years, and especially recently, have noticed more and more that students of color typically respond really well and are typically pretty excited to find out that you're in their corner um, or to have you in their classroom. How has receiving their excitement and I think even as you were just saying, you've kind of looked back on your own journey and seen you were actually in majority white spaces um, as a student of color. So what has this awareness brought to you now that you are also a professor, that there aren't very many, quote, you's in the education system. Mm-hmm. Um, how has that impact of seeing students respond so well to you and be excited about you in their corner? How has that impacted you?
0: I work with students doing art, doing theater, or musical theater. Um, And we haven't done a ton to talk about entertainment, but we have said over and over that representation matters uh, and it matters every day forever. And so for me, that is especially important in the entertainment industry, the entertainment sector, which I work in with live production and theater, musical theater, which we are aware there are not great demographics for the representation and are all of those representations positive and uplifting and narratives that speak more about the life of people of color and not just their pain and so i think it's important one there was a while back where there is a meme going around like when was the first time you had a black teacher?
1: I was just thinking about that. Uh,
0: Or if you, you know, or expand that to a teacher of color. And I was like, um, high school, junior year of high
1: school, Wow, I think. So 11 years of education.
0: Yeah. Like, yeah. And then you do that to, you think about that. Okay. In college, how many, How many of your professors were of color? And that might expand, but in my major field of musical theater, at my undergrad, none. Wow. Like none, where I was. Now, of course, that's if you go to a historically black college or university, that's gonna look very different, but I wasn't there. Um, And so, even in my program, my grad program, For that faculty, none. And where I am currently, I am still the first professor of color.
1: Okay, so I just want to hit pause to let it sink in for me. So, in growing up years, from kindergarten through 12th grade, your first black teacher was a junior when you were a junior in high school.
0: Maybe a senior, because it might have been economics.
1: So that you only had one? That I can remember,
0: I believe...
1: One. Okay, so in 12 years of school, and then in high school, obviously a lot of different teachers because you're rotating classes, yeah. one. And then in college, none in your major. And then in grad school, none in your major. And now you are the only faculty member of color at the institution you're at now in your department. In my department. Which for me as a white person... I mean that's a that's an element of privilege I haven't dwelt that much on, but that's unfathomable to me.
0: And and that's compounded I think for the arts and that you are using your body and your voice, uh, your mind to tell stories. And so if you are mm-hmm. constantly surrounded by people who don't have any reference to your background or. Or how your personal experience reflects, you know, why you perform a certain way, why you sing a certain way, why you dance a certain way, Uh, you feel like you're wrong. Yeah. Uh, And we're getting taught a lot about a whole, you know, slew of European ideals and things without an idea that our art has been informed by more than just the West and that, we have African influence and Asian influence and lots of things that enhance our art and what we consume, uh, but if there are no faculty members there to to give voice to that, now don't get me wrong, there are a lot of we- really well-versed uh, white professors that, that do speak into that, yeah. but they are still speaking from a knowledge, from knowledge, not experience. Mm. And so I can say, From the conversations I've had with several students, they are just happy that there's somebody that understands what it's like to not be in the majority. And for somebody that also studied musical theater and went through the arts and doing plays and musicals that understands that it is trippy to try to place yourself in Iowa when you're doing The Music Man or in Oklahoma when... You know, you're like, I'm glad that I got this role, but like historically I wouldn't be here. And so am I ignoring myself? I'm ignoring who I am as a black man or black woman to play this part. And there's a role, there's a time for color conscious casting. There's a time where it doesn't matter the race of, of, of that, of the actor playing a role. But in times like today where race is so important and part of everything we do, it's it's difficult to say as a performer especially a young performer coming to their identity how do i ignore all of who i am to put myself in this world and play and say these words that weren't written for me Mm -hmm. at all that were never really conceived for me to play now we are glad that art evolves like we do but It's nice to have a professor there that understands that and can sort of help walk you through that other than a professor that's gonna look at you and say, I don't understand. Why is it so hard? Um, So yeah, I think it's important that you have people all around you uh, that represent different walks of life to enhance our understanding of the world. That's not a checklist. I think some people feel like it's just a checklist for, you know, quote, unquote, affirmative action, but it is literally to make things better. It is literally to give a voice to things that you can't think about or won't think about because you've never experienced, uh, which is why it's also important to have people with disabilities around yeah. because it's like, oh, wow, I didn't think that this, there's no accessibility here, that this is telling people with disabilities that they're not welcome here.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, and a large array a large array of things like that. So. Representation matters all the time, every day, forever.
1: What would you say to a white college student who's in a major who also doesn't have any faculty members of color to enhance their learning? If they are on this journey and are like, wait a minute, there is other sides to my education that I'm missing out.
0: Uh, I think there's a lot we can do now because we're such a global society uh, and technology is literally in your pocket on your phone is that... Uh, look at some of these, look at books and articles of leaders in your field and see, if find, don't look and see, because there are people of color (laughs) who are, and there's this myth that like, well, we just can't find qualified people. That's a lie. There are people of color who are equally as smart as everyone else. They just aren't always even the same opportunities or same platform. Uh, Or the platforms they're on are deemed less than because they're not, the white platform yeah. that has been largely pushed since 1950. So you have to say they've had like potentially 50 years ahead of another platform or group that's new. And so uh, go find those books, go find those authors, go find those podcasts and learn from them there. Their information is just as valid as their white counterparts. Yeah. Uh, I was listening to a podcast about um, Leslie Odom Jr. who won the Tony for... Um, Hamilton and obviously we have Hamilton live and he was on Dak Shepard's podcast and he was saying that he almost didn't do the recording that
1: the live recording that you can now see on Disney Plus yes
0: because of money issues and they just like agents and things were just assuming he was going to do it and he was like well what's the number and he's like no he said, you have to pay me what Aaron Tveit got paid for Grease Live on Fox. He said, that was *Greece*, and this <laughs> is Hamilton. I have won the Tony for this role. I know what I'm doing, and I'm qualified. You pay me, I think it's quote was, you pay me the same you paid that white boy to do Grease. Mm. Uh, and it's like, why should he get paid any less? Yeah. He's in a juggernaut of a the first musical that has sort of changed the landscape of musical theater in a long, long time. He wanted Tony for it over the creator of it. Yeah. And you're going to tell him he's not worth it. He's not. And obviously he was, he got his money and (laughs) he got it. And he didn't ask for a thousand more. He said he wanted exactly what he got. So it wasn't even a matter of being trying to
1: price. Yeah. I'm
0: trying to be better, but he's like, we have to know, there's a line in, ba- in the Dark Knight Rises where the Joker says, if you're good at something, don't do it for free. And I think we, as people of color, we have to remind ourselves that we hold the same value as our white counterparts. And yeah. it's not right just because they're white, they get paid more. Yeah. Uh, and and we'll go into that later. But uh, <laughs> that's just sort of the same idea is that it's not a issue of... I think the myth is that we're not as smart and not as good and just not equal to, but that's a lie. It's not even a myth, it's a lie. Yeah. And so we have to counteract that by standing up and saying, no. And if you are in a position of privilege, like Leslie Yodham Jr. was at that time, he said, you also have to be prepared when you make that stand that sometimes they won't do it. Hmm. Uh, and they will just like, no, we don't want to do it. Uh, it obviously worked out for him, uh, but sometimes it won't.
1: And what do you say to the black student who was you in college or something like that? How do you find those mentors that look like you and can understand you when there may not be any obviously in front of you?
0: That's tricky because I didn't really have them uh, when I was an undergrad. Uh, I found mentors that were white and they offered valuable insight into the profession but they couldn't speak into my spirit in the same way that mentors of color have in the past. Um, and I honestly don't have the answer for that one because mm. you're so locked into where you are now. Yeah. Because mentorship for me is such a hands-on, like you need to be around them often and be able to speak into what's going on. So sometimes you get to work with people other places in the summer, you keep those relationships alive. Since then, I've had been able to work with other uh, artists of color that I'm like, oh, yes, please <laughs> tell me more. Yes, please answer this email. And they have been incredibly supportive and pointed me directions I should go. Um, but that's just a harder one. And you, it's not so much finding them there, just finding a mentor yeah. and then clinging on to them for your <laughs> life forever. <laughs>
1: uh one thing that i would just throw in with that is what we saw at our last institution i think for predominantly white institutions something that might be underrated is your multicultural affairs office or some capacity of that um even if you don't click with anyone in that office they might be able to point you to maybe it's a faculty member not in your direct field of study but could be that mentor that you're talking about just someone to pour life into you um apart from even the degree that you're studying, could be helpful. Okay, that's all my questions.
0: Okay, Holly Rochelle Brown. Oh, the full name. (laughs) Yes, it is. So you have talked a lot about your shift in thinking and how you've grown and being on this journey. And we've talked about it in our own marriage and life. And so my question for you is, Can you name, you know, a couple, a few traits that you like, that you know for sure? I used to think this, and now I believe this. Uh, I know that seems really generic and open-ended, but I think some of those are going to be 180 degree shifts. (laughs) Uh, And so I would love to hear what some of those are.
1: That is a hard question. (laughs) Um, I remember in high school being at a party with um, church friends. And I think we were watching a football game. It might have been a Super Bowl party. And I don't remember exactly what was said. But I remember hearing a negative comment, a stereotypical comment by one of the adults at the party um, about the black football players that the TV was showing at that time. And I remember it. Made me uncomfortable. Um, because it just triggered in me. Like as, as a believer. That doesn't feel like it should have been said. But that I didn't interject anything. I didn't say anything. And as the episode with Trent and Samantha Thomas. Um, we talked more about where I grew up. And it being a predominantly white area. And in our church, our church was not a mega church by any means. We weren't itty bitty. Um, It would be the mid-sized church. Uh, My youth group had no black students in it, but our town as a whole didn't have very many black families at all. And so I do want to stop for a moment as a caveat and say, like, I don't think it's wrong to grow up in a town that's predominantly white. That is outside of most people's control. And I think there are some families that maybe God calls you to move to, an, to a town that's more diverse or an area that's more diverse. But I don't think that God requires every person who lives in a predominantly white, majority white town to get up and move. When you are living in a predominantly white space, you do have added obstacles to grow in your education and to become aware of the other side of issues that may not be reflected in your friend group or even your church group. That memory from that youth party with all church friends with youth leaders um, stood out because I think I because I knew it wasn't right to say that but I also knew if I was being completely honest that I didn't have any black friends and I mostly believed Negative stereotypes. I didn't think that every black person was a a thug or anything like that, but I think I was of the mindset that the American dream was real. Like, if you worked for it, you could achieve anything you wanted to be, and there were no other factors involving that.
0: No, I think that's sort of the trick of the American dream. Yeah. Yeah. That it's lying to everyone. Yeah. But especially people of color.
1: Yeah. So, fast forward many years later, we were at some. Friends, but I would say they were new friends for us. And they had invited us over to dinner at their house and we were watching a football game. And the husband said a very derogatory, derogatory stereotypical comment about the black football players on the team. And I just remember, like, my eyes got really big and I looked at Aaron and Aaron kind of gave me the, it's okay, just not." not of the head type of thing. Um, and we just, I just sat there thinking like, oh my goodness, how could you say that? Why would you say that? What in the world? And and then kind of a gut check of me and thankfulness that that used to be the place that I was at and the Lord, and I, I don't mean this flippantly, like the Lord in his grace, I think has opened my eyes and allowed me to be on this journey towards anti-racism. Um, so that's a really long story to start the answer to the question, but um, I think that is one one of those things that growing up and in high school and sadly, probably even in college, I didn't challenge what was presented to me. I remember in college um, thinking, I don't unfortunately remember which incident it was, but I had seen a story where a, a black person had been taken into custody and I, I remember thinking like, why don't they just do what the cops say? Like, it seems it's that simple. Like, well, they're going to get into more trouble if they don't just obey the cops. And so that's another case where I no longer believe it is that simple that now I understand there's there's racism and there's bias in the hearts of individual police officers. And there's also obstacles set in place in the justice system to prevent the benefit of the doubt being given to black individuals like it is white individuals. I think for me relationships matter and for me it was engaging in real people and hearing their stories and checking myself when I started to explain it away or dismiss it or think Oh, they're exaggerating it. Like that didn't actually happen. It's sad because I'm in an interracial marriage, and but that did not come naturally. And it wasn't until I started getting close with some students and seeing the just complete difference in treatment um, of my student leaders that I was working with, if they were black versus if they were white.
0: Can I pause and ask you a question? Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna steer the question to okay. something else. This is still part of the same question. This is my second question. Okay. Okay. Uh, because I don't know if I had thought about it, but listening to you answer that, would you say that you don't really think you really started to g- dig deep into this journey until I started grad school? Yeah. So what do you think? I don't know if I've asked this, like, what did you think for those first two years of marriage? <laughs> That's <a> great
1: question. <laughs> Uh, I think, so the chunk that I left out, which is probably pertinent, um, I leave it out because it, it's cliche. And now that I've been on this journey, I know it's like the number one thing you don't say. <laughs> but it's like, I really did have best friends who were black <laughs> in college yeah. and after college. Um, and it wasn't, honestly, I remember conversation less than one hand. The conversations we had about race but it was just being in friendship with them and seeing like um, they were some of the strongest character people in my circle they had fierce walks with the Lord they and I don't think it was anything consciously but I just think through getting to know them because they truly were the first people of color that I'd been friends with it wasn't until I was in college and so I think it it was the first step in recognizing, oh, relationships really do change people for the better. Because I think they can change, they don't change stereotypes, but they can eradicate stereotypes even without the conversation. I think it's even better when there are conversations. Um, but so all through college and then even after college, um, the a couple of the jobs I worked, I became good friends with different people of color and so I think that was a process for me of realizing there was some cognitive recognition of like oh I had had some pretty negative or believed not even willfully so to speak but subconsciously like these biases that were presented to me and so I think by the time we got I moved to Houston and met you I would say I wasn't at the place that I was growing Mm. up um, that I recognized, like with every race, there are gonna be people of upright character and people of bad character. Um, and so I think I'd move past that, but I, I would say I didn't dig into actually understanding the subtleties of racism that we have in our country today, the day-to-day, um, Oppression that comes is not the overt racism, that's not the name calling, but uh, being overlooked by your professor—not you specifically—but um, like the students I was engaging with, finding out like the jokes professors would make in class about slavery or about race or cultures, um, the the way that parents treated my student leaders of color and the names that they were called versus my white student leaders which is also something i'm not proud of because i've worked with students before uh working at that college but i would say it wasn't until you were in grad school that my eyes were open to the severity of problems that people of color face day in and day out and that it's not a once in a blue moon type of issue You probably could tell if you listen to episode seven, our Words Matter podcast, but another issue that I've become um, very passionate about is being pro-life, the phrase that's become popular is being pro-life from womb to tomb, Um, and not by any means am I saying that people who fight for the rights of the unborn are not pro-life, womb to tomb, but I think The phrase womb to tomb brings an awareness, just like the phrase Black Lives Matter, that maybe there hasn't been awareness given to this area before. And so I used to be a single issue voter. Abortion was the only issue that mattered to me on the ballot. Um, And now I no longer believe that, which I won't rehash everything I said in episode seven, but the short version being... Um, if I believe that life in the womb is precious, then I also believe that life outside of the womb is precious. And so the men and women and boys and girls of color who have been killed due to racism, due to bias in the justice system, due to racism in a police officer's heart, whatever it might be, I believe those lives are equally valuable and deserve to be fought for as much as the unborn life does Um, and so I now see being pro-life for me personally as something much bigger obviously um, I believe that life begins in the womb Um, that's a non-negotiable for me but I can no longer ignore the injustice and the murders of people of color in our country that are completely that are just as unjust as the abortion. And that is also something that I would say has been within the last two or three years even that I've gone on this journey of seeing my family in the news, seeing the faces of people I love in the news, putting myself in the shoes of the mothers who have lost their sons or their daughters and recognizing there has to be warriors fighting for them as well. There has to be the people of God begging for mercy and for justice and for righteousness to be done to save the innocent after they are born as well. And so that has become, I would say that's one of the bigger journeys that I've been on of of no longer being a single issue voter, but recognizing for me, there's a lot more to the conversation of lives at stake than only in the in the womb.
0: You are a mother of two kids, uh, a black beautiful little girl and a precocious biracial <laughs> little boy. It was
1: also beautiful.
0: Yeah, yeah. The, uh, but we've wait. been having
1: fights with our son recently. Yes, yes.
0: You you've talked a lot over these episodes about your sort of fears and things like that from the outside world. But do you have any sort of fears or worries, logical or illogical, <laughs> about? Feeling other within our family because you know your ex- yeah that you your experience in life will not be what the other three members of your family will be, uh, and even that idea as we talked about with the Callahans, I believe it was that your privilege doesn't extend to us. It does not raise our status as a family. You have to come down to our lack of privilege if you're with us. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, thoughts on any of that? <laughs> uh,
1: Yeah. So I have thought about that a lot. Um, when, so for those of you who are unaware, we've adopted our oldest, our daughter, Eliza, um, who's African-American. And when we were going through the adoption process and then after we got matched and soon after we had Eliza. I listened to Jamie Ivey's podcast, The Happy Hour, shout out to her podcast, quite a bit. And one of the things that I loved about that podcast was she is a white mom of four kids, three of whom are adopted. And those three who she's adopted, um, she and her husband are black. And so she spoke a lot about, and not even an entire podcast dedicated to it, but A few minutes here and there about kind of wrestling through this identity of being a white mom to kids of color and insecurities that come with that and having to grow into this place of confidence and trust and understanding that in her words i'm their mom but also being able to recognize and they have another mom um and that that not be a competition or a measure of insecurity but more of just the fact of the duality that her children have. And so I will forever be grateful for her words. Um, That helped me a lot when I first became a mom of, because it's true, like as a white woman, there was pressure I put on myself to want to be the perfect, the best mom that I could be to my black daughter and now my biracial son, knowing that There will be areas that I'm not able to connect with them on. Um, And I think that I am in a better place about now, but it is still honestly something that I fear and I struggle with of knowing that one day our kids will come home and they will have had a racial slur used against them and I will be helpless to fully empathize or comfort. But on the flip side of that, I'm so thankful that Aaron... I mean, I hate that he'll be able to empathize, but I'm so thankful that he is my partner in that sense, um, because I know he will be able to. As he, as he said before, like there's a difference between the head knowledge and the heart. And my mom's heart, I know, will be breaking, but just my uh, the humanity of experience, I won't be able to relate to in that sense, um, and so. Yeah, I have I definitely struggle with the fear of that at some point being a turnoff to our kids, that at some point it could get to the point where they say, "Well, you're white, you don't understand." Um and me recognizing that I won't, and I don't. Um I think I struggle with fear that I will say or do something that makes a situation worse (laughs) if we were in public somewhere and something would be said and magnifies maybe that we're an interracial family in a negative way instead of a positive way. um, I still struggle with feeling like, ooh, am I saying this right? Like, should I say African American here or black here? You know, just some things that I know sound trivial, but I so desperately don't want to be another source of hurt for my family members. And so it, for me, is, and I'm also someone who likes to be competent and aware, and so this has definitely been a process of learning um, to have to own the fact that the Lord put our family together, and in the words of Jamie Ivey, I'm our kid's mom, Um, and he decided that Holly Brown, the Caucasian girl that I am, was the best mom for these two, Um, and so I have to rest in that. And I have to allow myself the freedom to ask questions, to say the wrong thing. Because every parent says the wrong thing. I have memories of my parents saying the wrong thing. And and instead of me getting so flustered that it might tear our family apart because it's about race, maybe instead I need to recognize that's gonna be one of our regular conversations. We are gonna get looked at in the store. We are gonna get questions. We're gonna get rude remarks. And that is going to be a norm for our family. And so... Well,
0: we hope that declines. We do. Decline.
1: For us and our family, I think conversations about race will be and can be and should be a normal thing. Um, and it
0: should be for all families. It
1: should be for all families, yes. So I think like giving myself the freedom to be like, I'm going to say things that might hurt feelings. But I would no matter who my kids were. Because I'm human and I'm fallible. I have never felt othered by my husband, and I'm not just saying that because he's sitting here, (laughs) Um, or his family. They have been incredibly loving and just have brought me in as one of their own. I recently talked with a friend, and I was just telling her that sometimes it is hard to be the white wife, Not, not because of my marriage or my kids, but because... I can't fully empathize and I never want that to become a hurdle or an obstacle. And she said, but you you are a black family. And Erin, to your question of, or to your point that my privilege declines when I am with my family, with you guys, um, to me, I would say, I don't see it as a decline in privilege. I would see it as a positive thing. And we are seen as a unit, a black family unit. Um, I take that as an honor. And that freed up some of that tension for me to be able to kind of own more of those feelings of fear that, yeah, one day because our son is really, really big and he's on trajectory to be a really big guy, um, that that scared me.
0: Another encouragement to you is, as you said, the God, the God, <laughs> as you said, that God has purposed you to be their parents for a reason. Uh, I think the same is for them to be our kids, is that it's not all selfish gain, it's that the goal is that all of that will point us more towards him. And so yeah. we learn you know, more about faith and about trust um, and understanding about empathy and love and understanding and compassion from the journey we've had with our kids and knowing yeah. what you know, other kids of color have gone through, and you've worked with that. We can even see God's hand, and you having those specific students of color to prepare you to be a parent to students yeah. of color. Because we knew those yeah. college students before we had yeah. any kids, yeah. uh, and so that, and we both know that they have informed yeah. how we will parent yeah. our kids and what we will protect them from or attempt to and steer yeah. them towards, and to reinforce in their spirit every day as much as we can that they are beautiful and loved yeah. no matter what the world or others may say and we hope that that points them more towards the love of jesus yeah and that way and that it's not all just about keeping them safe but the ultimate goal has to be about allowing their faith to be their own and yeah. to point them towards the lord in that way yeah uh so i think to take some of that pressure just off yeah. of you. It's like, that's on both of us. Yeah. And, and like every parent you're trusting in the Lord for, you know, yeah. we just don't screw him up in general just because <laughs> we're parents. And that's, as we often say, like, Oh, they'll just go to therapy for that later. Yeah. We'll deal with that later.
1: I will say that I, back to the whole conversation of my privilege. Um, I read something by another white mom of a, she had a black son and, she talked about her privilege um, when he got to be driving age, when she was teaching him how to drive. She got pulled over one time. He wasn't driving. He was just in the front seat. And the, the police officer asked her if she was okay. He had made the mistaken assumption that her son was somebody who had like forced his way into the car and was forcing her to drive him around or something outlandish like that. Um, but I have thought... And I've prayed um, that if we ever are in a circumstance, that my privilege can be helpful, Um, that it can be something that, if necessary, could bring um, help or awareness or safety even to a situation. I don't know, I just felt like I should mention that for people listening, that this is a real. These are real conversations we have, and these are real thoughts that go through our head. And it's not exaggerating. It's not us living in a state of paranoia. It is a different reality um, that I've. I feel like I've moved from, and it's not. I, I've prayed so many times. Like I'm so thankful not only for the family that God has given me, but for the chance to be on this journey, and um, that He has given me the grace and the mercy to. To allow me to learn um, and that I'm not left in the state of ignorance that I was. Um, I still have a long way to go, but I am genuinely thankful that I've started to have my eyes opened to this different reality that I didn't know existed.
0: Which I think is largely, as we sort of wrap up for today, is a huge point about the goal of this podcast is that... For so many people, there's just a refusal to want to learn, to open their eyes and go. I didn't know yeah. uh, that they rather live in ignorance, even when people are presenting factual information and personal experience. That I
1: don't know if it's always even they they don't want to know. I think I think there are those people, but then I also think there's an element of, at least in my own life, there's been elements of well, it's more comfortable to believe what I've always believed. It's easier.
0: But I, and I, and I hear that, but I go, that's a desire to maintain ignorance, yeah. even if it's out of comfort,
1: Yeah,
0: if it's out of whatever. No,
1: I mean, I think that's true. It's just a different way to say it. It sounds better when we say it's about comfort. <laughs> <But> yes. <laughs> yeah, it does.
0: It does. It's <laughs> like, I just want to get in my comfort zone. But when you're not getting out of your comfort zone, you're literally perpetuating uh, systems that hinder other people. And that's, that's to me why it's so frustrating, sort of circling back to sort of where we started, is that the lack of care for other people that aren't in your circle, largely people in white spaces will make exceptions for the black people in their lives that are exceptional or the exception, um, but not for all black people. Yeah. And so are all people of color. The idea is that this should, that by learning, as Holly said, about the other reality of what's happening around you, that you can do your part to make it better. Like that is our call, I believe, as Christians. When we are close to love our neighbor and, you know, be the good Samaritan is to go out of our way to care for those who are hurting and in need. Instead of, the priest who walked on the other side, because yeah. you couldn't be bothered, and so often we're walking on the other side, and so I encourage preach. <laughs> stop
1: walking on the other side.
0: Yes, so that is our sort of end of today. Uh, we have a couple of fun things coming in the in the next few weeks uh, that we're going to try to use to wrap up this first season of the Reconciled Lives. So. If you all have just joined us or you are been here with us from the beginning, we thank you for listening. We hope that you are sharing. Well, first, we hope that this is resonating with you and that it is a voice for either frustrations you have or encouragement or insight into a different reality.
1: We also hope that you, if you do resonate with this, that you subscribe. Yes. And give us a review, please. We don't have any reviews yet, so some kind soul listening, (laughs) will you please just stop? And it can just be one word. It could be great. Fabulous. Awesome
0: yeah anything that's positive you just want to jot down yeah that's that's what we need
1: i mean you could you could put like the host or lifesavers what would we do without them
0: you don't have to that's okay (laughs) uh but anything if you can leave us a positive review and uh we love five stars any of that is great to help uh the podcast continue and other listeners find us which is not literally not about our ego Um, this is about hopefully spreading awareness and the understanding of what reconciliation can look like
1: we also, um, yeah, as Aaron said, have some fun things in store. We have more questions that we will be answering. Hopefully you find that fun.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and then we also, as Aaron alluded to, have an episode planned where we, we will be talking about the systems today and try to break down in a very practical, tangible way how there are there's still places of bias or racism at work.
0: Yeah, systematic oppressions that are sort of embedded into laws and policies. And so we're going to try to connect those dots and threads of this event from history, what that led to, and how we see it manifest today. So we are literally researching for you. So like...
1: Act of love.
0: Yeah. It's like being in grad school again. Anyway. uh, (laughs) But please don't give us a grade. (laughs) Yeah, no, please. Uh, Besides five stars. We'll take that. Oh, Oh, I see what you did there. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. And uh, have a great week. Thanks for listening to The Reconciled Life can follow us on instagram and facebook at the reconciled life and please make sure you subscribe so you can stay up to date with all we have going on and remember today is a great day to be a little better and do a little more